This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 11, episode 46. This is Writing Excuses, colonialism. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we are that smart. I'm Mary. I'm Tempest. I'm Shweta. And I'm Dong Wan. I'm Steve. So you may notice that we are having a complete lack of Brandon, Dan, and Howard. And the reason is you, our listeners, have been asking for an episode on colonialism, and we decided to bring in some experts to actually talk to you about what colonialism is and what the impacts of it are in fiction and kind of strategies and reasons why you should avoid it. So I'm going to have our panelists introduce themselves since uh, they are new to you. And we're going to start over here with Tempest. I'm Kay Tempest Bradford. I'm a science fiction and fantasy author. I'm also a teacher of writing the other classes. And I really love gel pens. <laughs> I'm Shweta Takrar, and I am a mythic fantasy writer, mostly young adult. And I really like sparkly things. <laughs> I'm Dong Wan Song. I'm a literary agent with the Howard Morheim Literary Agency. I represent science fiction and fantasy and YA. I'm Stephen Barnes. I'm a science fiction, fantasy, horror, and stuff like that writer. Great. So one of the questions that we get most frequently is, what is colonialism? There seems to be a lot of confusion from our listeners about what exactly this word means. So it's a big topic. And I think that's <laughs> why there's not a really clear answer. I mean... I, for me, a lot of what colonialism means is about contextualizing conversations about race and about culture in the history, especially recent history, especially one in the context of Western imperialism over the past you know, few hundred years. I'd add to that, uh, a lot of us who grew up in, in a, the States had textbooks that talked about something called Manifest Destiny that was lauded as something great, but I would actually argue the opposite because manifest destiny is basically the idea that a certain group of people are entitled to go sally forth and take whatever they want from the rest of the world because they can appreciate it better and it's their divine right to do so. And I feel like that still exists in our society today and sh definitely shows up in our literature and what gets appropriated and how it's told and who gets to tell. It seems to me that colonialism is the... the you take that manifest destiny idea, that imperialism idea, that basically human beings in search of resources will expand into other territory. If they have a morality within themselves, then they will come up with a way to justify the thing that they wanted to do anyway. Okay, because that's just the way we are. If a mugger mugs you, he doesn't say, and you're a nice guy. You know, he calls <laughs> you a son of a bitch. Okay, so, so if you take things from other people, if you need to do that, you create a mythology that says it was justified. They are not as good as us. In fact, we are helping them. You know, it's the white man's burden or whatever. But, you know, Cro-Magnons did this to Neanderthals. You know, just ask the Neanderthals. Oh, that's right. There aren't any Neanderthals left. <laughs> we do this as a species. Then we justify it afterwards. And part of the remnant of that is our history, is our mythology, is, is the saying you will speak this language, you will worship this God. You know, we are the standard of beauty and right. It's awful. Mm -hmm. So then that filters down into the stories that we tell, because one of the tools of colonialism, 
uh, is a tool that basically goes to the heart of who we are as humans. We love stories and we love narrative. We really love narrative. And any narrative that is crafted to show, oh, it's so great that these people came in and took over this land. Oh, it's so great that these people came in and imposed their rules and laws and such, because look how horrible off these people were before. But now it's so much better. You can find story after story after story of um, people who have been colonized who are so much better off uh, because the, these great people came in and, and took over. Yes, the, we civilized people saved the savages, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. And just to jump in, I think one of the most useful things about colonialism as a concept when it comes to having a critical conversation, you know, having a conversation about craft and, and politics is there's a two-directional aspect to colonialism. There was an impact that was inflicted on the people who were colonized, but then there was a process by which that culture was also internalized by those people and then, you know, reprojected out into the world, right? So it both is something that went to them and is now something coming back from them, right? So what ended up happening is you have a lot of these totally fascinating intersections between these cultures that were created at a point of economic and military conflict, but now have permeated all of our culture in all these different ways. So, you know, Indian literature, Asian literature, Caribbean literature, Latin American literature, all of these things have been irreparably and intrinsically impacted by this. So the more we can contextualize that, the more we can acknowledge how Western influence, you know, really changed how those people talk about, how they talk about themselves, how they tell their own stories, that gives us a context for figuring out, okay, what are the stories we're going to tell in the future? And what are the options that are in front of us in the future? And I think it's also poisoned the, the tellers, the, those who imposed their, their mythology upon the world. Take a look at what has happened since 9-11. America's mm-hmm. gone through a huge number of changes because we found out we weren't invulnerable. Okay? Mm-hmm. At the same time that women were... were taking their power in which gays were taking their power. They were having a black president. In other words, if you grew up as a white, heterosexual, Christian male, it must feel like the sky is falling. <laughs> I mean, literally, because for generations, you believed, you, you might be polite about it, but you were able to believe that you were the center of the universe. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be nice enough not to say it to you. I will grant that you are my equal. Don't you dare think you're better than me, though. And privately, we all know, you know. <laughs> right. so, so what happens when... The colonizer is forced to wake up to the fact that people are just people, awakening from the matrix, as it were. Um, it's painful. We can see that pain and that fear and that anger on certain segments of our political spectrum right now. They're, they're panicking. It's like the thing to do is to, is to encourage them to grasp that this has happened before. It'll happen again. Mm-hmm. We're going to get through this. Right. But, but then it comes out, that, that pain and, and fear that you were talking about, in ways that are really, really not helpful. Um, there was, uh, recent as to the recording of this podcast, a speech that Lionel Shriver, that's mm-hmm. her name, mm-hmm. gave at the Brisbane Writers Festival that was all about how uh, cultural appropriation... I'm just so tired of people telling me that I can't write about Mexicans with sombreros. I'm putting on a sombrero right now, and I'm going to talk about how it's just great because we fiction writers, we just write fiction, and we can do anything because it's all made up and, and other nonsense. And, oh, don't forget, there are no identities. <laughs> there are Nobody no identities. Has an identity. We're just all the same, and so I'm going to wear the sombrero. And that, that in and of itself is a problem because it... <laughs> The the whole discussion of cultural appropriation is so complex. It's way more complex than that. 
And it also then was the occasion for other people to roll out of the woodwork and be like, well, you know, the wearing of the sombrero was a bit much, but she really made some good points. And like, she made no good points. Just in case anybody was not aware, there were no good points made in that speech. (laughs) So to make a fairly complicated point, one of the things, so I don't really like the term diversity. And we spend a lot of time in publishing talking about, we need diverse books, we need more diversity. The reason I don't like the term diversity is because it still centers the conversation on the dominant paradigm, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So the term that Mm -hmm. I like is decolonize, not diversify, right? So that is why I like having conversations about colonialism rather than racism or even cultural appropriation sometimes because it forces people to understand context and history, right? right? This debate about diversity isn't about the color of your skin because who cares? It's about culture, context, and history. Colonialism forces you to acknowledge that as a term. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. This, just recently, I was on Facebook, I had, I had a chance to wake up to the fact that most people cannot separate who they are from their culture. That mm-hmm. most meditation forms are about observing your thoughts, stepping away so you know you're not your thoughts, you're not your emotions, you're not your experiences. And there was one woman who, there's a question that I asked in order to identify racists. And that is, given the same history, do you think white people would have done as better with slavery and its aftermath than, than black people have? And this one woman says, well, I think that white people would have done better because of our culture. And all I could think of was, you don't grasp that culture is your language, your religion, your history, your names, that that is exactly what was stripped away. In other words, the inability to separate, to even mm-hmm. understand what human beings are at that core level is underneath so many of the assumptions people make about how we operate in the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. a great place for us to pause for our book of the week. And Tempest, you were going to pitch that one for us. Yes. The book of the week is Everfair by Nisi Shawl. That's new this year. And it's actually a really great book for this conversation. It is a steampunk book set in the Belgian Congo. And it has 11 viewpoint characters. And each of the viewpoint characters comes from a very different background. Some of them are people who are indigenous um, to the area. Some of the people are from the group of people who are the colonizers of that area. And all the ways in which they're trying to build, they, they built a utopian society and all the ways that they're trying to work through, like, what it means to be in a utopia, and, and how you deal with the well-meaning people, the well-meaning folks in, in a group of colonizers who are like, we're here to help. And other people are like, well, that's great, but don't expect us to be grateful for it just because you're here to help, because you may not even be all that useful in helping. But there's, but there's so many different things going on. And plus, it's steampunk. And so everybody just wants to read awesome steampunk. And, and it's a really beautiful deep and complex book that explores a lot of the things that we're talking about here from a lot of different perspectives. So to guide us back in, I want to use an example uh, that I think will resonate for all of the listeners. Uh, Most of our listeners are going to be listening from uh, America, Britain, Australia, remnants of the British Empire, English speaking. Um, And you may think that I'm about to talk about the British Empire, but I'm not. Uh, one of the things that we all have, and the reason I'm bringing this up is an example of how long and pervasive colonialism can be. Why do you think we have Latin on our money? Why is the classic of Greek mythology still taught in schools? It's because of the Roman Empire. Like England was a Roman colony at one point. Can anyone talk about original English 
culture, or has it actually been largely erased by Rome? Now, we don't have to get deep into that, but the point of that is that colonization happened several, you know, hundreds of years ago, thousand plus. Um, I math. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But the point of that is that, that we still have lingering imprints from that colonialization that happened to pretty much everybody in the English-speaking world and, and great deal other parts of it. So when we're going back into this and we're talking about the, the damage of colonialization and, and the I love what you said, Dong Wong, about decolonializing. Can we talk a little bit about the ways that that has a specific impact on, um, on the erasure of culture? It's tricky because it erases culture. I mean, as, as Steve very, you know, saliently pointed out, culture was removed, but culture is also created, right? There, there's uh, one of the things that I find very interesting. So I live in Portland, Oregon. There was a restaurant that was launched in Portland, Oregon recently that was called, I believe, something like the Saffron Imperial Company. And it was an incredibly misguided name, and people got very mad at it. I think now it's called, like, the British Overseas Food Company or something like that. It's still a very bad name. But <laughs> what, was, what I loved the concept of it, which was, let's take a look at what kind of food arose from the intersection of these cultures. Their application was highly flawed and erased the identities of a lot of the people who actually make and eat those foods. Um, you go to a place like Singapore, you get to eat an incredible intersection between Malay food, Indian food, Chinese food, and British food. I had high tea that had jellyfish in it and curries. And there's something about that that is very exciting to me. And that's the kind of things that I want to see, you know, created in the world at the same time that all of that came from incredibly painful interactions and, you know, things that were destructive of existing cultures. So navigating that is our challenge. Mm -hmm. I agree. You said earlier, Dongwan, that there's no going back from what, what happened, and that's true. And I want, to, I want to point out an example that I think we're also inured to that we don't even notice. Look around at what everybody's wearing. And if you go almost anywhere in the world now, you're going to see people wearing these Western clothes. They've, they've actually come to replace a lot of other, other cultures' clothing, and which unfortunately often get called costumes. Please don't do that. Uh, it, it's, and that's very telling. And or when people come here from other cultures, they often feel the need to take Anglo names to fit in. And th- this is all a way in which we still have uh, a s- colonial thinking as the, as the default. Like, this mm-hmm. is how you get along. And, and if I made Tempest, I, I wanted to, to suggest, bring up a book that, in my mind, is a good example of how we need to be careful in how we tell others' stories. Mm-hmm. Because there. Uh, there is a novel that won the World Fantasy Award, I think it was back in 1984, The Song of Kali by Dan yes. Simmons. Yes, and I, was, I, was, I think I was in my very early 20s when I saw it in a bookstore. And I was so excited because I hadn't seen anything really so far that, that I'm a Hindu. I hadn't seen anything that in, in Western literature that really showed me. So I got really excited and I went to read this book. And, and it broke my heart because... Dan Simmons turned my goddess Kali into a bloodthirsty monster and had everybody who worshipped her be these just horrible criminals. And, and it was so hurtful. And then to find out that that won an award because people didn't even know any better here. And stories really have such an impact and, and we have to be so careful about how we tell them and who gets to tell them 
because mm-hmm. we do still have such colonialized thinking that allowed people to think this was fine. Right. Because, it, you know, it's, it's sort of related to the cultural appropriation discussion in that people say, you know, well, I should have access to that. I should be able to do that. It's fiction. It's whatever. But the thing that is, I think, that colonialism is designed to blind us to is the fact that colonialist narratives are, are designed to make the people in the group who are the colonizers feel better about themselves and the people who are in the group that are being colonized or marginalized feel worse about themselves. There's a study um, that Debbie Reese, who is a Native American children's literature advocate, uh, she, she pointed me to this recently. Uh, the study is called Of Warrior Chiefs and Indian Princesses. The Psychological Consequences of American Indian Mascots. And this study specifically was about showing, you know, mascots like the Redskins mascot, or, or there's like right. a baseball one as well, where it's, a, it's supposed to be an Indian. Yeah, um, right. And, you know, showing these images to children who are from, um, you know, a native nation, and then showing them to children who are like white Western children, and studying the self-esteem, the how, you know, the kids felt about themselves before they showed them these images, and after they showed them these images. And the Native American kids felt worse about themselves after seeing these images, but the white Western children felt better about themselves. What's really bad is when they say, but we're respecting you. This is, this is a gesture of respect. The meaning of a communication is the response you get. Exactly. So if you say, I want to respect you, and I, I use a symbol, and you say that hurts, the first time, that was my bad. I'm sorry. I don't do that again if I care about your feelings. But if I continue to do that, if I do that a second time, I do not respect you. I'm telling you, I will do what I want to do, and you will react the way I want you to react or shut up. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think one of the things that, that people need to remember is that appropriation and, and this kind of um, twisting of cultures was a, a tool of colonizers in order to suppress and control. You know, one of the, again, a classic example is the Christmas tree. The Christmas tree is really not Christian. Um, it, was, it was appropriated. And, you know, can any of you talk really at any about where that comes from, you might be able to be like, oh, yeah, I think I read on Snopes that it's... But it, that is a culture that has been erased. And if you want to see... I'm going to break what's-his-face's law here, but if you want to see, you know, sort of a failed but very famous example is the Nazis appropriated an Eastern symbol of peace and serenity. Mm-hmm. And, By swastik. Yeah, yeah, and now it stands for some of the most hateful things in Western culture. And so I get told by white people I'm not supposed to have it. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that that is um, going to lead us to the the, the end. They say that we can keep we going. Can, they say we can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the, one of the things uh, that we've been we've been talking about, uh, and and I think this is a, a good transition, is uh, the damage that can be caused by colonialism, and and ignoring the cultural context uh, that Dong Wong keeps bringing up. Thank you. Um, that that ignoring that cultural context when you are creating new fiction can cause you to reinforce harmful paradigms and and reinforce uh, existing damage. So here's one specific example that drives me absolutely bananas. Um, Psylocke of the X Men is a walking example of colonialist conception. She is she was literally Captain Britain at one point. She's the whitest of white ladies. 
and was at point, point, one point mind transferred into a sexy Asian body and has stayed there as she is now a much more popular character. She has remained in this state for a very long time and it, it's very damaging because you have literally a white person who is pretending to be Asian because it's more exotic and now she's a ninja and now she wears much, much sexier outfits. And um, it's a very problematic issue. And it's very sending a message that, you know, the value of Asian women isn't their history and their culture. It's how they present to the world. Oh, look, they can be ninjas. And, you know, it, it's not the kind of stories that lead to people understanding Asian women as people to be engaged with in their context and history. Right. right. And, and one of the, the real world examples of that is that... Uh, we we have a science fiction writer, um, Alyssa Wong, has talked about it on the podcast that she is often fetishized, mm-hmm. uh, and it it is a result, I think, of of these narratives that have been internalized by the reader. That's very true. You, you mentioned the uh, the spiritual other, you know, the the magical other, mm-hmm. and there's also the sacrificial other. Mm-hmm. Um, that the it's this is all the world. The language, religion, everything else arises from a particular point of view. We will measure everything against this point of view. So often people of color exist in order to ennoble white people. That the, you know, the sacrificial other is often the only one of a particular group. He is Gunga Din. You know, he is Morgan Freeman in almost any movie he's ever done. <laughs> you know, he exists in order to make white people feel good about themselves. In my mind... The, the worst example of this I've ever seen was in The Green Mile. Mm, that was Not the bad. book. The book was okay. Stephen King has his issues. But there's something about his, his genius, his, his, his quality, that allowed me to feel that he was touching something universal there. But the movie was loathsome. The, move, the director of the film left out one tiny little thing that Stephen King had put in. And that is that in the book, the Tom Hanks character, the guard, thought that maybe John Coffey was innocent and he was trying to get him freed. In the movie, he knew for a fact that John Coffey was innocent but did nothing to save him from the electric chair. I sat there in the theater and realized that John Coffey was not a human being. He was a symbol who existed in order to give, you know, to be human Viagra for Tom Hanks or to be smuggled out to save an an ailing white woman. The idea that he had hopes, needs, dreams, a life of his own that was being snuffed out because he tried to help two little white girls. I thought to myself that that director completely missed the boat, completely did not. You know, he's, he's not a human being. He's a symbol. He's JC. He's Jesus Christ. Don't you? No, he's a human being. He didn't mm-hmm. ask, what would it feel like to be a person of color and be sitting in the audience and see the only person who looks like you being treated that way? Mm-hmm. And this kind of goes back to a topic from an earlier podcast about microaggressions. Any individual example can be very frustrating, but it's easy to say, eh, it's not that big of a deal, it's one story, right? But when every time you see a certain type of character portrayed, every time you see that trope repeated over and over again, there's an accumulation of that impact, and that starts to leave a mark, and that starts to leave a wound over time, and it's very hard to overcome that. Yes. Well, so, one last thing I'll say on that is... That is basically just that's also a craft problem, because then if you if that thing is happening over and over and over again in media, why are you doing that? Why are you participating in something that's gross and offensive, but also what 10,000 other people have already done? 
so much of you know, this kind of thing comes down to you're just doing things that 10,000 people have already done. Once you start moving into the things that are more specific, the things that are more unique, then you're moving out of the realm of the hurtful things that 10,000 people have already inflicted. And nine times out of 10, it's so much more boring to tell that story. Yeah. Tell something new, tell something exciting and interesting and specific. Yes. That is going to be far better and far more engaging. Yes, and I want to add quickly that if you're thinking, I, I'm afraid to write about people not like me, good, be afraid, but, but there are also plenty of resources out there. A lot of us have taken the time to put those resources out there for you to learn how to do a better job. And if you're thinking about writing issues, remember that issues happen to people. So you don't want symbols, you want people. Yeah, yeah the best way to do that, sit down and talk with a person who is of the group you want to write about. It's just one human being to another human being across the table. Ask them. Get them to take a look. I remember Harlan Ellison calling me up and asking me to take a look at an early draft of Mephisto and Onyx because he cared about the fact he was writing about a black man. Yeah. It was as simple as that. Just remember, though, that you, when you're doing this, that you have probably internalized the idea that you are owed an answer, and you are not. So also, read. Read books by those people. Read books about those people. Read their voices. Read the history. Know what happened. And know what the issues are. Um, yes. There's... Tons of great literature out there, both fiction, nonfiction. Don't limit yourself to the genre you're working in. And this is just general writing advice. The wider and the more you read, the better of a writer you'll be. That is great advice to end on. So we are going to end by giving our, um, our listeners some homework or a writing prompt, which I... I that's me. You got that? I got the writing prompt. All right. So what I want you to do is I want you to take a character that you know very well you want to start, do this exercise the first time with a character that's not yours, but some character from book, TV show, movie series, whatever. Fan fiction. Yeah, that you know all about that character. You, you feel like you know all about that character. And write a character sketch of them, like one page is, you know, two pages. Then change that character, something about that character's identity that has to do with their race, their ethnicity, their culture, their, um, where they come from. Make that change, think about it, and then sit down and write the character sketch again and really think about what would be different about that person, about their history, about their life, about the way they interact with the people that they're on the superhero team with or their friends or whatever it is, how those things might be different, how they might be impacted by that major change. That's a great prompt. So I'd like to thank our panelists and I would like to thank our listeners on the Writing Excuses cruise. You guys are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of 
understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 